Madeline Langle is known so well to all of you that I'm going to reserve this introduction and let her just come up and share with you. Let's welcome Madeline Langle. There is no justice, Isaiah said. In other words, it's not fair. One of my daughters used to stamp her foot and say, it's not fair. And mostly it isn't. So towards the end of the passage that we heard, God has to come and take care of it. Paul is more or less telling Timothy, it's not fair. And then he says to Timothy, you must go and redress this. The gospel lesson uh is amazing in that Jesus is talking about the unfairness of the marriage practices of the day. And then he says, but you have to be like little children to understand any of this. And I think we have to be like little children to understand any of scripture. The marriage practices of the day were not fair. A man could say to a woman, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And she was out on the streets, literally out on the streets. There was often nothing else for her to do except go into prostitution. There's a Hebrew word for these women who were thrown out. The women did not have a chance to throw the men out. It didn't go both ways. It was not fair. Marriage was not fair. Women were supposed to do all of the work. When Jesus told the disciples before the Last Supper that they would see a man carrying a pitcher of water, that was extraordinary. Men did not do that. Women carried the water. Women did the work. We've, we've moved a long way in uh, our, our feelings about this. Jesus moved us. When he spoke to the woman at the well, he was breaking three taboos. You did not take water from a woman. You did not speak to a woman. And you certainly did not speak to a Samaritan woman. His friendship with women was also unheard of. His friendship with Mary Magdalene, with Mary and Martha of Bethany. Men did not have women as friends. Women were little more than slaves. They were used. They were abused. When the woman was taken in adultery, didn't it occur to anybody that it takes two to commit adultery? And the woman can't do it by herself. There's a man involved. But he didn't get blamed. Just the woman got blamed. We've slowly changed in our attitude towards this gross unfairness. In this century, in my lifetime, an enormous amount has changed. At the beginning of the century, women could not have bank accounts. Uh, a man could marry a woman of property, divorce her, and keep her property. It didn't work the other way around. Uh, women were just beginning to be educated just beginning to go to college. In the American South, where my mother came from, if a woman was intelligent, she had to hide it. I mean, women were not supposed to be intelligent. Pretty, but not intelligent. We don't mind that now. We, we don't mind it if women think. We uh, have women in very high places in our government, which would have been unheard of 50 years ago. So slowly, one kind of fairness gets unfairness gets redressed and another one seems to crop up in its place. Life is not fair. 
the media tries to teach us that life is fair and that normal is nice. Normal is not nice. Normal is like the weather we've just been having. (laughs) And when something strange happens, we think it isn't normal, we get upset. But that is normal. Life is not fair, but it is also full of incredible glories if we allow ourselves to look at things as we did when we were children. We may have stamped and said it's not fair, but we also didn't miss the glory of the sunset or the first star. I remember there was a tradition in the South that if you counted seven stars every night, you got your wish, whatever it was. That is not easy to do. I mean, there are seldom seven nights in a row when you can count seven stars. Clouds tend to come in, but that was fun and we tried it. Ultimately, you stop looking for fairness because we have something much better. When God came to us as Jesus, that was the total wiping away of all of the unfairness because Jesus came for us all. Everybody. Nobody was excluded. Not women, not men, not children. Jesus was born for everybody. And that wipes away all the unfairness that still remains because you can't take that away. That absolute love that we are all given no matter what we do, no matter how we stamp and yell it's not fair, no matter how much we make things unfair ourselves. If we truly love God, we won't do the unfair things. It just isn't possible. Love doesn't do them. Love is never unfair. God's love is never unfair. There's always a reason. I've come to trust it when God says no. In a uh, small church in New England, it's carved over the lintel, no is an answer. And we tend to think that no is not an answer, that if we don't get the answer we want, we haven't been answered. Well, that's not true. And I've come to learn that when God says no, that no is usually the prelude to something absolutely wonderful that couldn't have happened without that original no that we thought was so unfair. Like a little child, knowing that the story is ultimately going to have a happy ending, no matter all of the unfair and terrible things that happen in between. God promises us this happy ending. And the promise begins with creation, but comes out to us vividly in the birth of that tiny baby whose love embraces us all totally and assures us that God loves us. God is not an angry father. Even in the Hebrew scriptures, God is still not the angry father that some people have grown up to believe in, waiting to get you if you do something wrong. When I look at my children, I don't look at what's wrong in them. I look for what's right, and I believe that's what God does with us. God does not look at our unfairnesses, at our selfishness, at our anger, but at our potential, that what God wants us to be. And God wants us to be ourselves, fully ourselves, not somebody else, God does not want me to be Anton Chekhov or Willa Cather. He just wants me to be Madeline. I might like to be somebody else, but here I am, stuck with who I am. And that is what God wants me to be, fully and totally. We tend to be given idols by the media of what we are supposed to be, especially 
well, both men and women, but all the men need his muscles. And uh, the women need to buy clothes. So they're training us to live in a world that then becomes more and more unfair, rather than the world that was created in which we keep the bright, loving, questioning eyes of a child. It fascinates me that after his really diatribe against the abuse of marriage, uh, the gospel goes right into, but you must be as little children. And if we are as little children, it will help us to love each other. Man and man, woman and woman, man and woman, the, all the various loves that are offered to the human being. That childlikeness of awe and wonder and joy and laughter. Do you remember when you last laughed so hard you almost fell off your chair? You know, it's, it's a wonderful thing just to be overcome with joyous laughter at the craziness of this wonderful world. A lot of it does seem crazy, if not unfair. Certainly the idea that God would come, the God of all that creation, would come as a little baby, just to say, here I am. I'm with you. I'm not going to stop the bad things because I gave you free will. But I'm with you. I'm in it with you. In the New Zealand prayer book, the Trinity is referred to as life giver, earth, earth maker, pain bearer, life giver. Earth maker, pain bearer, life giver. And Christ bears our pain and in bearing it gives us life. We can to some extent bear each other's pain, not all of it, but we can take a little of the other's pain. Jesus did not carry his cross the entire way himself. Simon carried it part way. So we are allowed to carry each other's crosses or to give our own cross up and let somebody else carry it when we get too tired. But only if we are little children do we dare do that. Only if we are little children do we dare know that we are totally loved, just as we are in the midst of all the lack of justice and the unfairness and the terrible things we hear if we turn on the TV, which I very seldom do, we're still loved. We're still God's children by adoption and grace. And that is our vocation, to be these children that God loves, to listen for what God has to say to us, which may be totally unexpected, but to listen to it and then to try to be who we truly are who God wants us to be. Amen. And now we do have some time for questions. And I can't see beyond the first few rows because those lights are too bright. It's not fair. <laughs> be like a child then, okay? I'll take the questions and repeat them so everyone can hear. What brought you into the idea of writing for children and to become the person that we all know and love? When I want to write something that is too difficult for the grown-up world, then I will have a young protagonist and will market the book for children. 
But I don't write for children. I mean, A Wrinkle in Time, which was my seventh book, not my first, was written for me because I was not finding in the local church, which is the only church in our village, uh, that light which I needed to shine. And so I had to, had to write a book uh, which gave me an idea of a universe made by a God of love who's in everything with us all the time. But I don't write for children. I think it's kind of an insult to children. What books I've read? What books have meant the most to her in her journey was the question. And what verses from the scripture? Um, I have to put the Bible as the number one book, along with William Shakespeare, simply for his use of language, his uh, delight in puns, his poetry. Romeo and Juliet is full of sonnets all through the text of the play. Uh, I love the 17th, 16th and 17th century writers, most of whom were Anglican priests and used wonderful imagery. For instance, Herbert, there is in God, some say, a deep but dazzling darkness. Um, there are so many parts of scripture that I love, sometimes because I think they're so funny. Uh, we forget that, you know, the Bible is not meant to be that solemn. It is a... There are some very funny stories in it. Like, I think I told you on Monday when Moses is up talking with God and the people are dancing around the golden calf and Moses comes down and he's furious and Aaron says, but oh, I, mean, I, just, I just took the earrings and I, I, I put them in the oven and out came this calf. <laughs> I love that all Moses got to see uh, of God was God's hindquarters. Yeah. Uh, the Bible, anytime we get smug, will put us right back down. Uh, I love some of the Psalms. I love the 139th Psalm. It's Francis Thompson, in a sense, rewrote in his poem, The Hound of Heaven, that wherever we are, God knows. We can't hide from God, that God is always there in the dark, no matter where we go, no matter how much we say, God doesn't see, God does see everything. Uh, there's a story about the um, 23rd Psalm. In England at house parties, in the evening, people tend to play charades or give recitations. And at this particular party, it was recitations. And the great English actor, um, Charles Lawton, was there. And when it was his turn he, turn, he recited the 23rd Psalm. Magnificently, the Lord is my shepherd. I mean, the words rolled out in his great voice. And towards the end of the evening, somebody noticed a little old great aunt sitting in the corner, deaf as a post. She hadn't heard a thing. But they pulled her out and made her know she too had to recite. And her quavering little old voice said, The Lord is my shepherd. And said the whole psalm. And later on, a, a woman went to Charles Lawton and said, Mr. Lawton, you recited that psalm so magnificently. So why were we so moved by that funny little old lady? And Lawton said, well, I know the psalm. She knows the shepherd. <laughs> the question is, how do you think of things to write? The story that when Johann Sebastian Bach, that great composer, 
was an old man, a young student, said, Papa Bach, where do you get the ideas for all of those melodies? And the old man said, why? When I get up in the morning, it's all I can do not to trip over them. <laughs> it's the same with ideas. They're there. I sometimes trip over them and fall flat on my face. <laughs> Whenever I have been... Yeah, better on that one. (laughs) Uh, The question was, uh, Madeline, have you ever been disobedient to an idea that you felt God gave you to write about? And if so, is it possible to come back to that idea later on? There were times I say, God, do you really want me to write this? And if the answer is yes, I have to do it. When I have been disobedient, and we all are at times, it's ended in the round file. I mean, I don't go back. If I've been disobedient, it's not going to work. And so sometimes I write things I really don't want to write because for some reason God is calling me to do so. Uh, About certain human relationships I'd rather not get into. But this is what God has called me to say. And I have to try to be obedient and to listen and, and try to put down what I hear. And often it surprises me. I mean, characters say things I don't expect them to say. They come in when I don't expect them, and I have to be obedient. That's a very good word to use for any kind of an artist, that whatever it is, we have to be obedient to what God is calling us to do, whether it's writing or painting or singing or playing the bass viol. Please. Mm Mm-hmm. When and how did you first know that you would be a writer? When I was five, I wrote a story about little G-R-U-L, because that's how I spelled girl when I was five. And uh, I started writing so early that it was not a sudden discovery. I mean, I simply moved into knowing that this is the talent that I was given and that I had to serve it. And uh, I was very aware, consciously, of this by the time I was in high school. Uh, Up until high school... I was not a successful school child. I mean, my teachers thought I was stupid, which I was not, but they thought I was, and that is very, it's a very difficult image to get rid of. But by the time I got into high school where I got teachers who actually thought I could do things, I knew that that was my calling. And uh, I wrote a large part of my first novel while I was in college and then finished it in, uh, when I got out. So it, it's... The knowledge that it was a vocation and not a career Mm. came to me basically when I wrote A Wrinkle in Time, my seventh book. I thought of it in terms of career. And it's a a very humbling and sometimes very frightening thing to say, no, this is not a career. This is a vocation. This is a calling. Take some from the back, back there. Could everybody hear that? I missed the end of it. Okay. Uh, try it again. Because I didn't get it. It's a good question. I want to get it right.
Okay, what in your experience led you to the conclusion that we can't, as Christians, allow the idea of unfairness to dominate our lives? I suppose having children (laughs) and watching them yell it's unfair and saying, who promised you fairness? Then I had to turn that to myself. My children were, um, oh, about six, eight, and ten while I was writing A Wrinkle in Time, and I kept getting rejection slips. And I thought they were unfair, and some of them indeed were unfair. And um, I would get the kids to bed. We'd say prayers, do the whole routine. And then I'd get the dogs. Dogs are never unfair. Uh, Amen. And walk down the dirt road our house faced on, and bellow at God. Say, God, why all these rejection slips? I mean, you can do something about this. Uh, You know it's a good book. I wrote it for you. And the stars just kept on quietly shining. Um, I, I, I had to learn that was not the first time I went through a whole bunch of rejection slips before getting a book published. Uh, I, I had to learn that unfairness is simply part of the root. And I've known a few people who've met with very little unfairness. And they really haven't done much growing. Mm. You know, they're, they're sort of thin in, in their spirits. Uh, we don't like unfairness. We don't like pain. We don't like difficult things to happen, but they're how we grow. And there is no other way, and I don't understand that. It's not fair, but that is how it works. I was having tea with uh, a minister who, and I told him that I had to admit that my best work had come from pain, from the things that had hurt me most. And he said, well, let's hope, so, let's hope something terrible happens to you soon. <laughs> I did not appreciate that. <laughs> One of my students went out looking for pain. I said, you don't have to go looking for it. That's masochism. Uh, just stand still. It will come. Would I define success? Success is going to bed in the evening contented with what God has given you that day, no matter what it is. It's nothing to do with the world. Okay, we had one back here. Yeah. Yes. Great question. Question was, everyone thinks of you as a writer, but when you're not writing, what do you do? I'm never not writing. I would uh, be in the kitchen talking over the day with my husband, and suddenly I'd hear his voice say, Darling, are you writing? I'd say, Oh, yes, I was. I'm sorry. (laughs) And he would say, It's all right. Go on. So if, if, I'm always writing. It's always moving. Uh, it's perking along in, in, the, in the slow cooker. And sometimes I do drop out, as it were, uh, and get so involved with the story that I can forget where I am and what I'm doing. Uh, since I have been here, I have had the most ferociously unfair time with my laptop. <laughs> Somebody has fixed it three times and said, it is fine. It took me 45 minutes last night to turn it off. 
I am not touching it again. I'm back to the felt pen and the yellow pad. It, well, at least I could turn it off. I could shut the pen. You know? Time for one or two more questions. I believe in angels. Uh, I don't know where we, where we would be without our angels. Uh, I have known my angels, particularly when things have been so awful and so difficult that I have needed an angel to say, it's all right, God is still there, it does still matter. And that's something that when things get very bad, we tend to forget that it does matter, not just to us, but to God. When we hurt, God hurts. It used to be taught in seminary two generations ago that God is impassable and cannot suffer. God is perfection and perfection feels no pain. That doesn't work. For most of the world today, the only God that we can believe in is a suffering servant in Isaiah. The God who's in it with us, the God who is the pain bearer, who comes with us into the darkest places and lights them for us. Take one more question since I've been unfair to this side. I'll take it from... <laughs> so you just don't, you don't have any questions over here. Yeah. question was, it, 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 in a sense, it's easy to believe theoretically in God's love, but uh, the questioner is saying, why is it so few people actually experience God's love? I believe that we experience God's love in moments of love in our lives. Uh, I believe that when I made love to my husband, I was experiencing God's love. There was another time when I was... Um, in bed with uh, knee surgery. And about eight people came over to bring me dinner and sat around the bed. The bed became the dining table. And then somebody began to sing Patrick's Breastplate. We sang the entire hymn, all of it, it's a long one. And I felt just bathed in God's love. God loves us through each other. It isn't an abstract love, but a totally personal love that our calling is to be part of that love and to give it. So sometimes it's come when I've been rocking a baby, uh, when I've gone out to dinner with, with friends, with my granddaughter and her Greek husband, who, when he gets excited, talks louder and louder and louder no matter where we are. <laughs> when she goes over my checkbook and says, Gran, you try to do it yourself. And you made a mistake. Grand, just don't try. You know. God's love comes in all of these ways. Thank you very much, Madeline.